Welcome again. Good morning. Those online, we're glad you're with us as well. We're starting a new series today um, that my plan is we'll go kind of the rest of the summer. And it's called History. When I was in high school, I had several different history teachers. And for the most part, I did not enjoy history until I got to college. And I had a professor at Harding called, his name was Dr. Klein, Kevin Klein, not Calvin, um, is his brother. Um, you know, one taught history, one made underwear. Um, <laughs> sounded so much better in my mind. But, but Dr. Klein had a knack for making history come alive. And I loved being in his class because getting to hear him tell the stories, it felt like you were there. And he had the ability to put you back in time and allow you to experience these things in American history and gave me an appreciation for history that I'd really never had before. And mostly, I think, because I never had a really good teacher. The Bible, as we look at, is this historical book. And what I want to do in this series is go back and look at the story that the Bible tells. Kind of go back to the roots of our faith and our traditions of what we believe. Because I think it's so important at times to kind of go back to the foundations because it's so easy to get lost in in some of the the more detailed parts of our faith and, and questions that we have, but to really go back to the foundations of it. And today we're celebrating the Declaration of Independence, a day a document was signed, a document that means a lot to us as Americans. And today I wanted to kind of go back and look at a document that we have and kind of ask some questions about this document. Because I think we make a lot of assumptions as Christians. We make a lot of assumptions about the Bible. We assume that people know how we got it, where it came from, how it came to be in this form. I think we assume that people would just believe it regardless of and not question it. And I've talked to so many people in our churches that I don't think have a grasp of how we got the Bible. We spend a lot of time in here talking about the Bible, but I've never talked about how did we get the Bible. Where did it come from? And so I want to kind of go back and look at this document and ask some questions about it, because I think it's really dangerous today in our society to assume that everyone else is where we are. Because for our younger generations, they are taught to question everything, to not trust things. And and so how then did we get this ancient document? Why does it matter? Can we trust it? Why is it so important? And I want to kind of deal with some of those questions that we really just don't talk about in church. We just kind of assume everyone knows and everyone's on the same page. But like I said, the more I talk to people, the more convinced I am. There's a lot of people who aren't real sure 
how reliable the Bible is or where it came from, how we got it, how it was put together. And so I want to, I want to start with kind of a definition for you, okay? And, and I was given this definition when I was in graduate school, and the, the guy, the professor, the preacher who was talking said, you're completely um, allowed to steal this from me because I stole it from someone else. And, and so I have just kind of, you know, God gave you eyes, plagiarized. So I'm going to just take this from him, all right, and, and use this, and I'll tell you where he got it from in just a few moments. But the Bible, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It records supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claims that its writings are divine rather than human in origin. Got it? Let's look one more. The Bible's a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It records supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies, and it claims the writings are divine rather than human in origin. So then where did this definition that he says he stole come from in the first place? I'm glad you asked. It came from 2 Peter. 2 Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from, the, from God the Father when a voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. We also have the prophet's message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as a light shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, through human, or though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, so there's kind of a, a, where that definition comes from. And I want to kind of just unpack that definition a little bit this morning is we talk about these questions. So first of all, it is a reliable collection of historical documents. Okay? At the very beginning, this is a reliable collection of historical documents. The Bible is not a book. The Bible is a collection of books. It is a collection of many writings. And it's not a flat text. I think so many times we just think, well, we just read the Bible because it's the Bible. But the Bible has prophecy. It has narrative. It has poetry. It has parable. It speaks in so many different ways that communicate one single story. And it tells names and dates and places and names people. Because it is packed 
with history. So the Bible, as I said, is not a book. It is a collection of books. It is 66 books written by 40 different authors on three different continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa, in three different languages, Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, over 1,500 years, all telling one comprehensive and cohesive story, the story of God. That fact alone is fascinating. 66 books, 40 authors, three continents, three different languages, over 1,500 years telling one single story. There is nothing else like it in all of literary history. It is a fascinating work that we have. Now, how do we know that we can trust what we have here today? Right? You, you've opened it up. You've seen it. There are so many different versions. And we will ask, well, how do we know if this is what we were supposed to have from the very beginning. So, when we talk about historical documents, the very first thing people want to know is what kind of evidence is there in the form of manuscripts. So, so manuscripts are these ancient writings that we have handed down through history that we can have and hold and touch and actually read. Okay? So, so the New Testament, as of today, has approximately 5,900 different manuscripts in the forms of scrolls, papyrus, fragments, all that we have and hold and touch and people can actually read. I think, well, how does that compare to the rest of literary history? The next closest is Homer's The Iliad. And we have about 1,900 different manuscripts and fragments of this writing. Caesar's Gallic Wars. We have about 250 manuscripts. Right? And these are not questioned at all. We, we assume that's plenty of evidence. And what's fascinating, as you go from here, from Gallic Wars, it drops off significantly into the 40s and 50s and sometimes even just single digits of manuscript evidence for other works through literary history. Fascinating. But then the next question, okay, so when is the earliest fragment found? When, when, because we want to get as close as we can to the original, right? The very first manuscript evidence we have is about 40 years after the original was written. We have some pieces from the Gospel of John, which I'll show you a little bit later. We have some pieces from the Gospel of John and some of these Gospels that were, we have fragments that we can actually hold in our hands that see, well, you can't touch them anymore because they're put in glass and they're preserved. But you could actually hold on to that are about 40 years after they were written. Okay? Now, Homer's the Iliad, fifth, I'm sorry, wait, we'll get there. Fragments, 285 years. And then for Caesar's Gallic Wars, 850 years is the earliest 
manuscripts or fragments that we have from these texts. So when was the earliest complete manuscript done? For the New Testament, it was about 250 years after these books were written. And it's really hard to tell because the books were written over about a 50-year period, from about 50 A.D. to right around 100 A.D., sometimes a little bit later. But trying to figure out when that first complete manuscript was about 250 years after it was done. For Caesar's Gallic, or I'm sorry, for the Iliad, 1,550 years for um, Gallic Wars, it was 850 years. And so there is this distance between these ancient texts and what we can actually have and hold. But when when I talk about the evidence for the New Testament, understand this. Almost 6,000 different manuscripts from the New Testament alone. In he, or I'm sorry, in Greek and Aramaic. When you start to add in other languages, we are in the tens of thousands. Right? Because Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples. And really quickly people started to translate this work, this Bible, from Greek and Aramaic into Syrian and Coptic um, and to all these other languages. And so we have these ancient, ancient manuscripts that we can have, that we can hold. The early church fathers wrote tons and tons in the first century, second century, and third century A.D. on the New Testament. And from their writings alone, we can recompose All of the New Testament except for 11 verses. We can take their writings, their commentaries, and we can recompose the entire New Testament minus 11 verses. So so how do we know this is real? Because the evidence supports it. The evidence that we have for the New Testament is fascinating. Archaeology continues every single day to unearth new documents, new pieces of history that all point back. Because there will be times people are questioning, well, did the the king, did Hezekiah ever really live? Do we have any evidence of that? And and several years ago, they unearthed um, all of this evidence, the seal of Hezekiah that he would have stamped on a letter. Like they unearth, they, and they can hold it and have it. This archaeology, just like the evidence, continues to support that these are reliable collections of historical documents. They are written down by eyewitnesses. Okay? So these people are people not who, you know, it was their third cousin twice removed. These are people that were there. They walked along the past. They were prophets and priests and kings and apostles and close association with apostles. For instance, Luke was not an apostle. But I want you to listen to how Luke, who traveled the world with Paul, begins his gospel in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Going on, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first, um, who from the 
first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, this is Luke, carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty the things that you have been taught. So Luke just begins. He says, hey, I've heard all these Jesus stories. I've traveled with Paul. I wanted to know what this was like. And so I went out and I investigated all this on my own. And I'm writing to you an orderly account of all these things that we've been hearing. All these things that we've been talking about. So, So this is not like a second hand, you know. This is people who were there and walked with Jesus. These were the prophets who led Israel in the wilderness, who spoke out when Israel was unfaithful. Time and time again, we have these writings from eyewitnesses. But not just these eyewitnesses who wrote these things down. This was also during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. In Corinthians, Paul is kind of unpacking the gospel. He says this in 15, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the, all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also, to me also, as to one abnormally born. So, so it's not just that we're writing these things that we saw, we're writing these things that all these other people saw. So we're telling you about the resurrection of Jesus. And it wasn't just us. It wasn't just some dream. He appeared to more than 500 other believers. So it's this reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And it records supernatural events. It doesn't tell the story of just ordinary life. It tells the story of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. We, we hear in um, Peter the story of the transfiguration, where Jesus goes up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he is transfigured before them, and this light shines down from heaven. And says, you are my son whom I love and I am pleased with you. We hear stories like we talked about last week of Jesus walking on water. Or Jesus feeding the 5,000. That this is the act and the work of God in the world to redeem and restore his lost world. To make the bad good again. This is his Plan. And so he tells of these supernatural events that take place to fulfill specific prophecies. So throughout the Old Testament, we have prophecy after prophecy telling of the coming of Jesus. 
In fact, we read one of those when Chuck read it for us during communion from Isaiah 53. And this telling of this lamb who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent, excuse me, is silent before it shears, he did not open his mouth. So we have this prophecy written down. And you'll hear people at times say, well, yeah, but that could have been written after Jesus. But in 1946 and 1947, there was a fascinating discovery. And you probably know what it is. It's the Dead Sea Scrolls. These shepherd boys, these goat herders, were walking through these caves in Qumran, right outside of Jerusalem, not far from the Dead Sea, throwing rocks into caves when they hear this jar shatter. And they walk in, and they discover this first cave in 1946 with these scrolls in it, with these fragments of ancient manuscripts. And these findings that happened over the next several decades, and in fact, in March, they even found a new cave at Qumran this past year where they're finding more documents. That's why I said there's about 5,900 manuscripts because we're still finding manuscripts today. And when we get into the Old Testament, we have over 20,000 manuscripts. And so these little goat herders find these Dead Sea Scrolls. And one of the most significant discoveries was found in the first scroll, or in the first cave, and it was called the Great Scroll of Isaiah. This is a picture of it. Um, Not a very good picture, um, but it is this ancient document, and it is the most complete biblical scroll that we have. And this scroll is dated from around 200 to 150 B.C. 150 to 200 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. We can hold this scroll in our hands as this complete, basically complete work. We have spaces and and parts that are missing. But that we can look at from almost 200 years before Jesus' crucifixion. To me, that is just fascinating that there is so much evidence that supports what the Bible says. And then finally, it claims to be divine rather than human in origin. That this is inspired. And so then the question becomes, well, what do we actually mean by that? When you say the Bible is inspired or it is the word of God, I think what most people think in their mind is God was sitting up in heaven and he had some golden tablets and he wrote on them and then just dropped them down into the middle of human history and said, there you go, that is God's word. I would be very skeptical of gold tablets being dropped down into our world. And saying, this is a book. But what Peter talks about is God working through people. God does not detach himself from human history and drop down this divine rule book. He comes alongside, he partners with people. 
prophets and apostles and disciples and kings and priests. And he says, I'm going to speak to you and you are going to speak to the people on my behalf. You're going to speak these words. And along the way, these words are written down throughout history. And it is God's covenant story of how he is redeeming and restoring the world. It's not God's finger etching these in stone. It's God partnering with people. And I would be terrified that this story did not include people. Because God does not, like I said, does not detach himself from us. He joins with us and partners with us in restoring his world. He asks us to be a part of what he's doing in this world. And so he comes alongside these people. And he empowers them with his spirit to be able to write. And it's not just sitting down writing all at once like we would do today to, you know, to get your 25-page paper done for your professor before midnight. That this is happening over time as they're retelling these ancient stories that have been passed on, not just through writings and storytellings, but things like mills. That we had this Passover meal together that told this story that had been passed down over the ages. So why is it that those 5,800, 5,900 manuscripts are so significant in getting us back to the original. So I want to kind of talk just a second about the Old Testament. This is the oldest Old Testament manuscript that we actually have right now. I think they actually have found some older ones that they're still working on, but that, that I know of, this is from Exodus 1. It's the very beginning as it's talking about Joseph's descendants. They've dated this from around 150 B.C., Over 150 years before Jesus walks this earth, there is this Dead Sea, and this was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, this part from Exodus 1. The oldest actual complete manuscript of the, the Old Testament is called the Leningrad Codex. Okay? It was dated around 1008 AD. Right? You think, well, that's, that's not very old. I mean, that's over a thousand years after Jesus walked the earth. That's not super. But here's what's amazing. Is we have these codec, these complete manuscripts, and then we have these fragments, these pieces of scrolls that we can look back and compare them to. And we can say, well, this document says this, and this one says this, and it supports what this Leningrad Codex says. And it gives evidence to what we said. And as I said with the Old Testament, we're talking around 20,000 plus ancient manuscripts and documents and fragments of the Old Testament alone. So what was done with the Leningrad Codex was it was translated, and it's what's called the Biblia Hebraica, and this is standard for what a translation today would come from, right? The Biblica, Biblia Hebraica Quinta, which is the fifth edition. And the reason there are new editions is because we continue to find new manuscripts. 
We continue to find more evidence. Just like I said, in March, they uncovered a new cave in Qumran from this community and more Dead Sea Scrolls. And so as archaeologists continue to work, we find more and more and more evidence. And what you'll find in here is the biblical text, as close as we think it is, and then what's called down here a textual apparatus. And we'll get to that in just a couple minutes, okay? Then, here is one of the oldest biblical documents we have. It's from the Gospel of John. It's called P52. And it looks like it's a mirror image, and that's because John, or whoever was writing this scroll, it was written on both sides. And so we have this fragment. This fragment is dated from about 125 AD, about 50, 40 to 50 years after John's Gospel was written. This right here, I think, I think one of the most significant of all the discoveries, P46, is dated from about 200 A.D. And this is actually 2 Corinthians 11. But what's so significant about P50 or 46, excuse me, is it's not just Corinthians. It's most of Romans. It has Corinthians. It has most of Paul's epistles. And it has the book of Hebrews as well. One of the oldest biblical New Testament documents that we have, and it has a substantial amount of the writings of, Paul's, of Paul in it. Um, the oldest New Testament complete manuscript is called the Codex Sinaiticus, Sy- and it was about 350 A.D., Right? And today what we have is called the Nessel Allen. Um, again, just like the Leningrad Codec, it is the text with a textual apparatus. And, and so, okay, so what's the deal with a textual apparatus? What, what in the world is this? Okay, so maybe you've heard someone say before, well, the New Testament or the Old Testament, the Bible is full of errors. They are correct. There are errors in it. In Textual criticism, we call those variants. Right? Variants in the New Testament, there are about 400,000 variants in the New Testament. That should not bother you one single bit. And the reason it shouldn't bother you, and, and there are 400,000 variants, in the New Testament there are only 1, 000, I'm sorry, 138,000 words approximately. 138,000 words, 400,000 different variants. But like I said, that should not bother you. Because, as I said, we have that textual apparatus. And in those 5,900 different manuscripts, what scholars are able to do is they're able to go back and they are able to find, well, this text says this and this one says this. And then there is this text that says this, 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 this. And so there are categories of these variants. I'm going to give you this quadrant right here. Four four quadrants. So these variants that are not viable, that means they're not very likely that they actually were the, the original. Like we found this in an 11th century manuscript. It was by itself. It's a simple variant. Um, not viable and not meaningful. Meaning, if, if it were true, it wouldn't even matter anyway. Of 
all of the 400,000 variants in the New Testament, about 70% of them fall in this category right here. The majority of them are spelling mistakes. As scribes are scribing and copying that there is a misspelled word. Or you can tell that they grabbed a word from the line above or the line below because their eyes got off. 70%. Now, when I said there are 5,800 manuscripts, that's what makes those fragments so important, that we can look back to John's gospel. And we can say, wow, this, this is super close. And here's what's fascinating, is it's almost spot on with the majority of the evidence we have supporting this. Right? You, you tracking? So it, it helps us to see exactly. And, and what's amazing is we can tell, well, here's where the scribe got off. Because we know this manuscript or this fragment was from this person and this person and this person. And we can tell that this person's the one that misspelled it. So you have not viable and not meaningful. Over here you have viable but not meaningful. So, for instance, one of the, the most um, popular ones that kind of fits in this category. In John's gospel, his name is spelled two different ways. There, there's two different spellings of it in, in a, a lot of texts. Is it viable? I mean, it could be either one. Is it really meaningful? No. We know who the author is, and we know what he's talking about. It's not that big of a deal. There's another set down here, not viable, but meaningful. So we found this text, and this text, um, it changes a lot if that's really true. But here's the thing. We found this in an 11th century manuscript that was written in Syriac, and it's not super credible that this is really what it says. It's a variant. It's one of those 400,000 variants. Because when you're dealing with that that huge amount of text. With the New Testament alone, we have about 2 million, 2.6 million pages of texts. Okay? 2.6 million pages of text. Because each of these documents are about 450 pages in length. Right? And then this final category, um, viable and meaningful. Right? So, it's very likely that this is a, a good possibility. This is what was meant or what was written. And it's pretty meaningful, or it can be meaningful. But let me tell you this, okay? Of those 400,000 different manuscripts and fragments, I mean, I'm sorry, 400,000 different variants, only about 1% fall into this category. And I think it's actually less than 1%. And zero in that category affect any major theologies. So when we talk about this word being true, we know with almost complete certainty this is pretty much what the original text would have been. Let me show you a couple of those, those variants really quickly. So here's one. Um, this is in Matthew chapter 1, I think verse 21, 22, somewhere in there. Otus gar susai. So say tone kusmon. So for he will save the world. This is from when um, the prophecy with Mary. You will give him the name Jesus, and he will save what you've heard your whole life, his people from their sins. But we have an ancient manuscript that actually says, "For he will save the world." But then there's another one that says tone loon to altu. 
for he will save his people. The majority of our manuscript evidence all points to this. It says this is what was really written. And you really shouldn't doubt it. Like that, to, to me, that is so much um, confidence that what we're holding on to is so truly the word of God. Right? Here's another one. This is from 1 John chapter 1. We write this to make our joy or your joy complete. Not really sure which one this is. Is it, is it viable? Yes, it's viable. Is it meaningful? Yeah, I mean, it kind of, is it our joy or your joy? So in those Greek textual apparatuses that I talked about, it would look something like this. Go ahead and go to that. This is all the evidence we have supporting that it was our joy complete. These are all manuscripts. And the, the amazing thing about this now is you can find all of this on, all of these documents are online. Right? And then there's another, uh, next slide, where it's your joy. This is all the evidence we have from ancient text saying it's your joy. Okay? So, so is it viable? Yeah, I mean, either way. It, it could go either way. Is it meaningful? Yeah, it kind of is. Does it change anything about our theology? Oh. No. Oh, it's just understanding what, what Paul was trying to say, or I'm sorry, what John was trying to say here. One, one other one, and this one you probably know of. Okay? If you turn your Bible to John chapter 7, and you look at the very, very, very end of the chapter, there's a little footnote, okay? And I didn't put this. Even if you use an electronic version, it's still there, okay? It says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7, 36, John 21, 25, and even showing up in some of Luke's writings. Right? So they have this story, Jesus with the adulterous woman, and we believe it's true. We, we believe it's a story about Jesus. We kind of think John was one of the people who wrote this, or at least was telling about it. Maybe, maybe John told this to some of his disciples, and one of his disciples said, well, this story needs to be included. But, but the oldest manuscripts don't have this right here. Okay? So, so you have these, these parts of Scripture, and, and of those right there that are these kind of chunks, there's maybe two or three in all of Scripture. So, so when we talk about these differences, understand. And for me, this is what makes the text so beautiful. This is not God just saying, well, I wrote this for you, here you go. This is God working with his people throughout history, flawed and imperfect, but still giving us his word and speaking to us. And, and here's what I believe when, when we say inspired. Okay. I believe that if God wanted us to have this text, that he has the power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that lives in us, has the power to produce this text for us. Right? 
So, so we have this text that we can have and we can hold. So I want to talk just really, 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 really briefly about this. These versions. Because how many people have ever been confused by versions? I mean, if you pull up version, there's lists of them. You go into the, the Bible store and there's the King James, and the New King James, and the ASV, and the New ASV, and the NIV, and there's so many versions, okay? So how do we get them? There, there's three categories, okay? First is a word-by-word translation, okay? So this would be something like the ESV, and, and the ESV is going to go through and it's going to take word by word and translate it. The problem with that is it does not read really smoothly. I love the ESV. I hate teaching and preaching from it because it, it sounds like I failed at Hooked on Phonics. Okay? But as far as the, the closeness to the text, I love the ESV. Then you have sentence by sentence or phrase by phrase translations. So this is the NIV. What what the NIV does is they take this word-by-word translation, and all of these translations go back to those ancient, the Codex Sinaiticus, which is now the Biblia Hebraica, right? It it goes back to those manuscripts, and they translate. So it's not like telephone game, where like we took the, the, the King James Version, and we translated that into the New King James Version, and then we translated it into the ASV, and then we translated it... If there is a new translation, it must come from the Greek or Hebrew text that is recognized as historically accurate. And so when we talk about these phrase by phrase, the NIV is my favorite of these. So the ESV, then the NIV here. And what the NIV does is it takes this word by word and it says, okay, how do we say that most succinctly and make it readable and understandable for everyone? So, so in a way, it's a little bit, and any translation is a sort of a commentary, right? But, but the NIV just makes it readable. And that, that's why I like it, because I can read it easily. And then there's one other category, um, paraphrase version, something like the message, where they take this biblical text, and it's basically a commentary trying to say, this is the overall intention. And so I, I hear people say all the time, well, you can't listen to that because that's not accurate. Well, that wasn't its purpose. Its purpose wasn't to be a word-by-word. It was to, to give you a, a bigger picture of what the text is actually trying to say. Right? It wasn't its purpose to, to be word-for-word. Word. So yeah, they, they changed a few words because it, it makes sense today in our culture. We, we understand that better. So, so is the NIV reliable? Yeah, it is. It's, it's very reliable. Is the message reliable? Yeah, it is. It just didn't have the purpose of being a word-for-word translation. Right? So why, why do we say all that? Okay, why, why do I think it's so important that you kind of have a little bit of a grasp of this? Because I think we assume so many people would just trust that. And we live in a world where there is more and more and more skepticism. Where people are questioning. And we're, okay, well, so why is that, that important? So, so next week what we're going to do is we're going to jump into the story that this book tells. 
But before we jump into the book, the, the story the book tells, I wanted to kind of go back and how did we, how did we get that? Can you trust that? Is it reliable? Is it anything like it was intended to be from the beginning? I would say absolutely 100%. It is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that fulfills specific prophecies, and it claims to be divine rather than human in origin. Absolutely, you can trust it. But here's, here's the beautiful part. Is this story, this story, 66 books, 40 authors, 3 languages, 3 continents, 1,500 years, tells one beautiful story of God. And the Bible is the retelling and remembering of the great acts of God in history to redeem and restore his good world. Can you trust this? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is beautiful. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that we have so much confidence that what we have, what we read each week, what we study, what we open up, is the word that you intended for us from the beginning. And, and Father, so many things that we've discovered and so many things that we've seen have given us confidence beyond a shadow of a doubt that you speak out of love and boldness to your people. Still today, as you have done for thousands of years. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the blessing of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.